0: Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing, and Ayurveda podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and I welcome you to episode number 35, where I speak with Ayurvedic Dr. Mary Alice Quinn on the topic of perimenopause and postmenopause. Coming up next. Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and it is my deepest desire to journey with you down the path to better health, mind, body, and spirit through the practice of mindfulness and spiritual awakening. Here in the sacred space, we will examine how the practice of higher consciousness and self-awareness can actually lead us to an optimal state of physical and spiritual health. We will talk about the various ways to increase our awareness and support one another along this beautiful journey. Thank you for being here and welcome. Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and I welcome you. I'm here today speaking with Mary Alice Quinn. Mary Alice is a National Ayurvedic Medical Association peer-reviewed Ayurvedic doctor And clinical herbalist serving clients both nationally and internationally since 2004. She is a senior instructor for the California College of Ayurveda and the International Integrative Educational Institute's professional training programs. She currently resides in Sacramento, California where she has an active private practice blending Ayurvedic nutritional therapies and daily rhythms as well as personalized herbal remedies and body therapies to assist her clients in achieving and maintaining healthy, satisfying, and balanced lives. She was also my instructor for my Ayurvedic health counseling program through the California College of Ayurveda. Hi, Mary Alice. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Yes, indeed. I'm just very excited and looking forward to the topic of perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. Yes, you got uh, it. Yeah, mostly because, well, when I was in Ayurveda school, as you know, because because you were my teacher, yes. um, we we hit upon you know a, it a little bit, but as I was at that point, kind of in the menopause phase, yeah, I was interested in Ayurveda's um maybe more holistic approach yeah and just the emotional side of in the western cultures tend to demonize menopause or villainize like it's this awful horrible thing that happens to us and then and then we're old and we're just we just might as well fold it up yes 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 the ayurveda does not look at it that way it looks at it as a transition Mm. Period. That's a really important time in women's lives and a chance yes. for them to go to focus on themselves finally and mm. go inward, right? And kind of prioritize ourselves a little bit at that point. So you got it. I can't wait to hear all about it. So, yes. Mm. Well, Sherry, you've been in my mind and my heart uh, as
1: I've been preparing for this because you literally are taking the words right out of my mouth and setting us up so perfectly for probably the most important aspect of our conversation today, which is the psycho-emotional perspective that uh, we have on menopause. So I'm so glad that you brought that up and that you have experienced that firsthand. So a very brief disclaimer, I want to be sensitive to communication and the technical appropriate term for woman might be menstruating body we're definitely speaking to the menstruating bodies of the world. I recognize that not all menstruating bodies identify as women or females, but for ease in our conversation, I'm going to use the term woman or women. Okay. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, And also... I'm going to try to be as clear as I can when I'm communicating from my own opinion, my own experience versus when we have something in the research versus what Ayurveda says, right? So I don't conflate those, those things together. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, the very first point I want to make is that menopause is not a disease, right? Uh, the The medicalization of menopause, is definitely something that we have to reframe. There's no disease that's associated with menopause, but there can be some dis-ease or lack of ease as we transition through menopause, right? So menopause is really a natural and ideally gradual cessation of menstruation, which may or may not be associated with a variety of symptoms, right? So my point being, not all women are going to experience menopause in a quote unquote negative way. Right. In fact, there are a number of studies that have found some really interesting reoccurring themes in women's lives that decrease the likelihood of them experiencing negative symptoms. So this is really interesting. So in the research, women who reported an increased sense of freedom with menopause, Mm -hmm. a heightened social status with menopause and healthy mobility after menopause are much less likely to report negative symptoms, Right. So I just find that fascinating because that right away speaks to the psycho-emotional in in some ways, even spiritual perspective of menopause that you already introduced us to.
0: Yeah. so I I, I can speak to that for one brief moment of, I don't know why I had such a positive outlook towards menopause and entering it and and looking forward to it because Mm. my mom had a very opposite Yes. Uh, you point, And maybe that's why I, I said, well, oh, I'm going to see the, the good or the positive in this. Um, nice. and, it, and it really did help a lot. So I can test. Well, it absolutely.
1: I mean, you know, this is really that mind body connection. And I know that, you know, the, 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 subtle things are easy to dismiss because they're not as tangible as, you know, the food pieces, the supplements, the herbs, but that mental emotional connection is so, important. It's so powerful that if we ignore that, then we're expecting too much from our herbs and our supplements, right? Because our (laughs) mental emotional perspective really trumps a lot of those things in a lot of ways, right? We're definitely going to get into that a bit more, but let's define some really important terms because they're not interchangeable. There are some important distinctions that we want to make so that we can communicate accurately. And the first is that the term menopause is typically used to refer to what are actually three distinct phases of this natural transition. As you mentioned, perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, right? Mm -hmm. So perimenopause is that period of anywhere between two to even eight or more years before the actual cessation of menstruation. And during this time, periods tend to become irregular, Right. So, of course, that's a natural result of our declining reproductive hormone levels. But periods may become closer together or further apart. They might be heavier one month and lighter the next. Uh, a woman might skip a cycle here and there. It's that transition phase towards actual menopause.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, Then we have menopause, which we actually technically only know that we're in menopause in hindsight. Because menopause is the period in which a woman stops menstruating for an entire year. So once you've had 12 months without a period, technically you have been in menopause, right? So that's why we really only truly know that in hindsight. Mm -hmm. And then post-menopause is the time after the complete cessation of menstruation, right? So you've gone 12 months without a period. You know that you were in menopause. Now the 13 month and on, you're technically post-menopausal until the day you die.
0: Right. So then, those- you know, there's a, a really funny thing that happened to me and I've heard it from friends of mine as well. Yes. I went all the way to 12 months and I was just about to hit that mark and then I got it. <laughs> and I got kind of start yes. all over again.
1: Yes. It was like a custard last stand, right? Exactly. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> the final surge. Yep. Yeah. Not uncommon. And so we see that our biology doesn't care about these parameters. Our biology is our biology. Um, But we have these terms just so that, you know, again, we can communicate as effectively as possible. We want to know the difference between a woman who is in menopause, experiencing menopausal symptoms versus that perimenopausal phase where we have a lot of opportunity to work more preventatively, right? So I want to tie in the Ayurvedic understanding of the life cycles, because I think it's really poignant to our conversation and exactly what you were already alluding to. Of course, Ayurveda bases everything on the Tridosha theory, right? The theory that that these three basic energies govern everything in the natural world. So menopause marks the transition from that fiery pitta time of life into the etheric and airy vata time of life. Right. So, if we just very briefly review those stages of life or those life cycles, kappa, being the energy that is all about growth and development, is the birth to pre puberty phase of life. Right. So, the kappa time of life is from the time that we're born all the way up to puberty, where those earth and water elements dominate. And it's a time of growth and development. We're learning about life and we're exploring our dharma. Right. Our Dharma in, in some uh, ways could be defined as our life's purpose, right? Our work, right? What we want to contribute to the world. Sure. Then the pitha time of life is from puberty to perimenopause when that fire element dominates, which is a time of building and maintaining our work and our career, our family, our community. Essentially, we're carrying out our, our Dharma. And finally, the vata time of life is from menopause until death, which is the ultimate transition. Uh, where the ether and air elements dominate more outwardly on those things like family and career. And we are transitioning into our Vata time, which is more of a time of reflection. It's a time of, you know, sitting in our wisdom and letting go of a lot of things. So our attention to your point may be turned more inward, and our spiritual experience might deepen during that time. Or in a lot of cases, we may be called to share the lessons that we gained from our dharmic work with others, right? So that's all very much appropriate for the Vata time of life. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So you can see as a preventative system of medicine, Ayurveda urges us to be aware of these kind of overarching themes of each phase of life so that our energy is directed in the proper ways, right? To keep us in balance and to carry out our life's purpose, but always be looking ahead to what's coming next so that we can successfully prepare ourselves for that next phase. right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So really important point here, the healthier and the more balanced we are moving from the Pitta into the Vata time of life, the smoother that transition and, you know, potentially more rewarding our experience of life can be. And of course, on the flip side, any imbalance in any of the doshas, but especially a vata imbalance moving into the vata time of life, the greater the challenges we tend to face. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, the proper age for menopause, according to systems of natural healing, is about 54 years old. The average age for U.S. women is about 51 And so we're not that far off, but we are seeing more and more women entering into menopause earlier than that. Ah. And in general, the earlier the onset, the rougher the ride, right? So definitely see more symptoms associated with that transition when women enter into menopause earlier, right?
0: Mm, Okay. Yeah. So that might explain a little bit. My mother was about 42. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about some of those uh, potential
1: influences in modern time that may be contributing to this earlier onset. Yeah. Obviously there's still a lot of research to be done, but we have some pretty um glaring cues, let's say. So let's mention what these symptoms are, right? So I mentioned that not all women are going to experience symptoms and, you know, it can be very uneventful in a lot of ways. And it's difficult to really separate out symptoms that are truly hormonal based versus what are symptoms that are a natural part of aging anyway, right? Right. Right. Because there's a lot of overlap there, obviously. But the vast majority of our menopausal symptoms, spoiler alert, are Vata <laughs> <laughs> symptoms. Vata yeah. right. Vata. Including the most famous of which vascular instability, which is technically called vasomotor symptoms. So those are the hot flashes, the night sweats. And interestingly enough, it doesn't present as heat for all women. Sometimes they're cold flushes or just a tingling sensation, right? So these are the vasomotor symptoms. Those generally last anywhere between one to two years. Although, Uh, we do find one in 10 women will continue on with those vasomotor symptoms into their 60s and their 70s, right? Mm -hmm. But that um, tends to be much less common. Now, an interesting note, hot flashes are a vata imbalance, not pitta. So most Ayurvedic aficionados will associate heat with pitta, which generally is a pretty reliable association. But when it comes to hot flashes, Ayurveda describes this as a samana vayu disturbance. So samana vayu is that sub energy or what we call the sub dosha of vata that controls stability in the body. So it regulates the autonomic nervous system including functions like the regulation of body temperature. And if you look at hot flashes they're so vata, right? They kind of come and go without warning, they're here and there. Yeah. Um might have a ton one day and not as many the next,
0: yeah, right? Not predictable.
1: Very unpredictable. And oftentimes, even when we are able to identify triggers, they are not always reliable triggers. Maybe it triggers it one day, but not the next. Right. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with Pitta and conditions of excess heat, that heat is much more consistent. It doesn't like show up one day and it's gone, you know, the next moment. Right. Right. Um, so remember this connection to Samana Vayu when we talk about prevention and treatment right? Because that's going to help us to kind of close the loop there and make that connection. We also see heart palpitations are very common, which is kind of like a sense of fluttering in the heart, or maybe like it feels like your heart's skipping a beat. And we see tachycardia, which is a racing heart rate very often in menopause. Speaking of the heart, one of the bigger concerns is increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And one of the reasons why this occurs is because estrogen is responsible for keeping the blood vessels flexible, Mm. right? They uh, maintain greater elasticity or compliance Mm. under that influence of estrogen. So when estrogen drops, all of our tissues are susceptible to losing flexibility. Our blood vessels are no exception to that.
0: Definitely, I definitely had palpitations.
1: Yes. Very, very common. Joint and muscle pain. Again, is it hormonal? Is it aging? One of the things that is very much aging and hormonal is the loss of bone density, right? Where a woman is not really going to have any symptoms of that per se, but it does increase our risk of fractures, which can be quite serious. Yeah. So hip fracture in particular is associated with a dramatically higher risk of death in seniors, right? Mm. And again, we can tie in the connection to estrogen here. Estrogen helps to regulate our bone cells. Our bone cells are called osteoblasts, which they're responsible for producing new bone. So if you have a decrease in estrogen, that's going to influence our bone tissue. We have accelerated bone loss, which winds up being somewhere around 2% a year after menopause, right? Mm -hmm. So we, on average, will lose about 2% of our bone density per year. And we're going to touch on that in our prevention discussion as well. Yeah. Now, we can see the same influence of this estrogen withdrawal on many tissues. We'll see breast atrophy. We'll see that our skin becomes thinner, drier, a little less elastic. So therefore, we have a greater tendency to develop wrinkles. Now, this translates to our vaginal tissue as well. That tissue tends to become a little thinner. It might lose its elasticity, become a bit dry. Mm -hmm. And that can be one of the more problematic symptoms for a lot of women Which that goes hand in hand with a decrease in libido, which is common in menopause as well, which, I mean, we can see this as one of the cruelest of all realities when women are like finally sexually liberated from the possibility of conception, right? right, (laughs) Sex can be uncomfortable or in some cases overtly painful, right? Right. So um, we'll mention uh, a home remedy for that. And also some things that we can take internally that also promote a little bit more of that moisture and lubrication in the body. Yeah, We'll see urinary urgency and frequency increases and this thinning and drying of tissues increases our risk for urinary tract infections and vaginal infections as well. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes energy will be affected. So fatigue is very common, which goes hand in hand with insomnia, right? So insomnia is another feature of menopause quite often, especially sleep maintenance insomnia, where we've talked about difficulty staying asleep, right? Not necessarily difficulty falling asleep. Although of course that can be a problem as well.
0: I've always been Um, a sleeper and I definitely experienced that. Getting up at 2 a.m. and could not go back to sleep. Totally. Yep. Wide
1: wide awake, right? Right. Staring at the ceiling, which, um, you know, is obviously concerning for people, especially if it's not part of your typical experience. Right. 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 Women who, my point being, women who've experienced insomnia for their entire life, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is just par for the course. Right. But uh, yeah, so people, even if you are a quote unquote good sleeper you're the kappas or the pithas of the world, you may also experience some of those sleep challenges transitioning through menopause. Yeah, definitely. We'll see anxiety and mood swings and irritability tend to heighten. And we also see memory decline. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, these are all again, kind of a mishmash between uh, aging and hormonal symptoms. Like check, check, check. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course, this paints a pretty grim picture but I want to reiterate the research findings that women who reported an increased sense of freedom and heightened social status which obviously speaks to our mental emotional perspective on aging and menopause and those who enjoy healthy mobility after menopause which speaks to our physical health yes. were much less likely to report negative symptoms mm-hmm. right Now, it's interesting to have conversations amongst natural healing practitioners. We commonly discuss how different cultures around the world view menopause, and it's definitely not grim, right? It's not not all grim. So it's, it's fascinating when we look at cultures where women's social status does elevate as they age, where they're seen as the wise women of their communities or their tribes or their families where they're looked up to, they're respected and revered, where they're really integrated into the fabric of their society, menopausal symptoms are often
0: essentially non-existent or let's say mild at best. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I say, check, check with some of these things because I was in Ayurveda school at the time. Right. You know, my consciousness and stuff was growing and rising and whatever. And, you know, I've always been a big yogi. So it's like those Mm. symptoms, At last, they didn't linger. They kind of came, showed themselves and then took off, you know? That's right. Because naturally we're, we're going to feel different. It's, you know, my point is not that
1: it's going to be the smoothest of all transitions and you're not going to experience any symptoms. There's a major transformation going on, on many levels, right? But our perspective of that transformation, just like you're speaking into makes a huge difference in how our body perceives it, right? Yep. Um. Uh, my mentor was mentioning one time that uh, he was having a conversation with an indigenous South African practitioner who said that they don't even have a word in their language for hot flash because it's just not part of their experience.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so I, that always stuck with me. I thought that was a fascinating observation. So if we first look at those psychological impacts yeah. that American women experience, We uncover a really subtle yet powerful influence that helps, at least in some ways, explain this stark difference and how menopause plays out for us. So I really do want to call out some of these societal differences that women may experience here in the U.S. and potentially other modern industrialized countries. I want to like really call out what those cultural influences are that could have a negative impact on what is a very natural biological transition. Right. It's all about what is our perspective on aging, which ties into our perspective on menopause. Right. Okay. Okay. So this is all my own opinion. This is my these are my own observations through 20 plus years of listening to women and talking with women and counseling them. Right. But in my mind, number one is that we are obsessed with anti-aging, right? So we're socially programmed to try to prevent fight against cover up at all costs. The one thing that's actually not preventable, which is aging. Right. So if you just take that alone, there's an inherent resistance to that change right? And if we look at our cultural attitudes towards elders and aging in general, now there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. I don't mean to offend anybody, but we generally don't have cultural respect for our elders here in the U S right. They're not playing pivotal mentorship roles in our society. And many elders in our country don't have the health nor the vitality to participate in that way, even if they want to, because they themselves were not taught to cultivate and preserve their health over their lifetime. Right. right?
2: Exactly. Yep.
1: And, you know, as women, as we age, we lose our natural capacity to provide offspring. And eventually we're no longer actively raising children. And that can be a huge part of our self-identity. So that leaves a lot of women feeling quite lost in that empty nest phase of parenthood. Right. Um, If we look to the workforce, we see many women are often competed out of the workforce as they age. And of course, like you mentioned, we hear things like being past our prime or menopause is the beginning of the end, right? And on top of that, if we look at the beauty perspective of aging, we receive constant messages about what beauty is. And it definitely does not include wrinkles, curves, and dryness. (laughs) It does not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's no wonder we have resistance to this change. I mean, who wants that, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. very
1: different than you know that. Let's say more traditional perspective, um, you know, where women have cultivated an entire lifetime of wisdom to then share with their with their tribe.
0: Yeah, right. you know, I really liked when the uh, the trend of gray hair. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it was like you know the twenty and thirty year olds were going gray,
1: totally, totally,
0: and I was yeah. like, "Yeah, now we' getting somewhere, you know, yep, and progress. there's just beauty in all the ages. it's just it's so unique, that time frame, but it's you're still beautiful, yes, I totally agree, right, which and you know that that, is, that wisdom is so beautiful that comes that's it, life. that really is
1: it. So, you know, before we touch on some of the important dietary and lifestyle considerations, I want to first stress the importance of our mental, emotional perspective, right? Because that alone can be a powerful tool to support this transition. So what does that look like? Of course, self-love has to be at the forefront, self-acceptance, finding ways that we can honor our own wisdom. And we do want to stay connected to our communities. We want to cultivate connections in our lives and ideally physical connections, Where we're actually meeting with people, real live people in real time, right? There's no substitute for that. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, we all have something to share. We're all beautiful in our own way. In fact, I love the Ayurvedic perspective on beauty, which is described as an inner radiance Mm. that's reflected from the inside out through a well nourished body, a balanced mind, and a peaceful spirit.
0: Mm. Right. Perfect. So beautiful.
1: Now, of course, in our menopausal phase, we may need more time alone and many women can attest to the fact that they've earned it, right? We may need to rediscover what we want, what we need, what we like. And of course, for a lot of us, we may be called to let go of limiting beliefs that are no longer serving us, right? Especially that menopause is a disease or a curse and we're the victims of it because nothing could be farther from the truth.
0: Yeah, or like our this life is, is over now because we're, we, we, we can't right. reproduce or whatever. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it really
1: is a time of profound shifts in our nervous system, our hormonal system and our consciousness, right? And we really want to embrace it and we, we can harness this power and we can use it to heal ourselves. We can liberate ourselves from any bitterness or resentment that prevents us from fully loving in the way that we know that we're capable of. Right. Yep. All right. Let's take a collective inhale (laughs) and exhale. All right. Amen to that. Now, essentially, physiologically, menopause is estrogen deficiency a natural estrogen deficiency. Uh, Our ovaries are no longer responding to those hormonal signals coming from the brain, right? Because there are no more viable eggs in the ovaries to mature. It's not that there are no more eggs. There's just no more viable eggs. To mature, Right. So folliculogenesis, the generating of new follicles ceases that feedback loop between the brain and the ovaries is not satisfied. Right. So FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone rises, and it doesn't come back down again, like it has pretty much monthly for the majority of our reproductive life, which is in part responsible for many of the symptoms of menopause. Now, so is, of course,
0: is this estrogen and progesterone, or? that's right. So in contrast, when we're in
1: our menstruating years, that follicle stimulating hormone stimulates the egg to mature in the ovary, which then in turn stimulates the production of estrogen and progesterone. Okay. And then FSH goes back down, right? But in menopause, since there are no viable eggs to mature, that FSH rises, the estrogen and progesterone are not produced to turn it off. And the body has to adjust to this new hormonal norm, right? And of course, that takes some time. And this adjustment is very much dependent on our overall health, right? So that will play a big role in how our body uh, adjusts to that because it's dependent upon our resources, our internal biological resources. Right, right. Now, interestingly enough, it's not that we stop producing estrogen altogether. It's not like, you know, estrogen just falls off the cliff and there we are. Right. We have organs and tissues that take over estrogen production when the ovaries are no longer responding to these signaling hormones from the brain. And these are, this is really important, the adrenal glands Mm. and our fat tissue. So that already starts to clue us into two very important aspects that we want to check with our health as we enter perimenopause and menopause. We'll talk about a couple of things there. I do want to mention as a side note, there's no one hormone called estrogen, which that's news to many of us. It's actually a family of hormones, more accurately called estrogens. Oh, okay. So there's um, estradiol, which is our main source of estrogen that we produce during our reproductive years from menarche to menopause there's estriol which is the primary estrogen produced during pregnancy and then there's estrone which is the estrogen we primarily produced during our postmenopausal years.
0: Oh interesting I didn't know that.
1: So let's come back to fat and the adrenals this is super important for us to know because creating health and balance within these tissues can obviously ensure a much smoother transition over to them right? For example, we don't want to be either underweight nor ideally overweight transitioning through menopause. So if we're underweight, which Ayurveda would describe as a vata imbalance, often rooted in poor digestion and absorption, often there's a lack of dense nutrients and healthy fats, there may be protein deficiency, disordered eating plays a big role in weight loss, and also just lack of routine around eating. Especially in a person who has a Vata dominant body type, yeah. then they're the ones that tend to be um, prone to being underweight. Now that can lead to us not having enough actual fat tissue to produce sufficient estrogen to meet the body's needs postmenopausally. Okay, right. So definitely don't want to be underweight. Yeah. Overweight is a problem as well, especially being obese, which this is a really scary estimate. That by 2030, that's not that far off, one in two U.S. adults will not just be overweight, but will be overtly obese. Right. So that's a serious, serious problem we have in our country. And of course, that leads to hormone resistance, meaning our bodies don't respond to hormones in the typical healthy metabolic way. All right? So that's its own issue. But then on top of that, also very important is our risk for heart disease, which is still the number one killer of both men and women in America, increases at a time when our risk for cardiovascular disease is already increased. Right. right. So aging and menopause are kind of independent natural risk factors. If you add obesity to that, the risk is much higher. Mm-hmm. Now, as for the adrenal glands, Of course, we want healthy adrenals throughout perimenopause and through our menopausal year. Again, so that transition from the ovaries to the adrenals is a smooth one. And a very common concern in our society, especially amongst women, is what is commonly called adrenal fatigue, which is more appropriately known as HPA axis dysfunction. Right, that's a mouthful. HPA axis dysfunction. This is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is essentially just the hormonal communication between your brain and your adrenals. And that can become dysregulated. It's actually, interestingly enough, an innate survival mechanism where our brains are programmed to initiate these survival adjustments in our physiology when we're experiencing chronic stress. Right. So chronic stress is the big boogeyman, right? That's the big thing. You know, when we're talking about what the heck, Do you mean by HPA axis dysfunction, just think of it as chronic stress, right? Mm. So we have to address chronic stress if we want to optimize adrenal function, which I don't know about you, but I've not found a more complete holistic system that addresses all aspects of a person's individual health better than Ayurveda. Of course, I'm a bit biased. I'll admit that. Um, which ultimately comes down to, you know, addressing all of those fundamentals of health to get us out of that survival mode and into more of a thriving mindset. Right. Yep. Which is definitely where we want to be when we transition through perimenopause.
0: Right. There's a considerable amount of stress during Mm. this period of life. Mm, Yes. it's, It's different than when you're raising your children and all that but we'll probably talk about that at some point. In the conversation. Yeah,
1: right. I totally agree. Again, I want to reiterate, it's well established that our general state of health is the most influential in determining how rough or how smooth of a ride it is. Yeah, But we do have some serious factors to contend with now in modern time. And again, this might help explain why menopausal symptoms are increasing in severity and frequency.
2: Yes.
1: And you really hit on it. The number one is that we have much greater lifestyle stress than ever before. We're expected to do a lot more with a lot less, a lot less time, a lot less money, a lot less help. We don't live in multi-generational families anymore, right? Mm -hmm. We definitely don't live in multi-generational communities for the most part, Mm -hmm. right? So we are experiencing a lot of that lifestyle stress. And some of it is, as we've already acknowledged, this psycho-emotional perspective on menopause, which we really need to check we really need to reframe that so that we don't cause undue stress for our bodies, that we really see it as the opportunity that it is. Yeah. Another big factor is that we are chronically sleep deprived, Mm. right? So we have lack of proper sleep, which is exacerbated by sleeping out of cycle with the circadian rhythm. So I wanna encourage anyone who hasn't listened to the previous podcast that we did on circadian rhythm, that will uncover a lot of gems that Ayurveda has to offer us on optimizing our sleep cycle,
0: right? Which is the when,
1: right? The when is a huge part of that.
0: Huge, yep.
1: And then on top of that, we have broad spectrum suboptimal nutrient levels, meaning that we're not necessarily overtly deficient in a wide spectrum of nutrients, but we definitely have suboptimal levels of just about every nutrient we know of and we can test for. Definitely. So that plays a big role. Um, And finally, we've got a really bad combination of more toxin exposure than ever before in human history on top of poor detoxification capabilities. Mm -hmm. So essentially we're exposed to more toxins and we have less capacity to detoxify them, which that ties into these nutrient deficiencies It ties into our diet and our lifestyle, because in order to detoxify effectively, we need optimal levels of all nutrients. We need excellent hydration. We need proper sound sleep. We have to poop every day. We need to consciously avoid things that add to our toxic burden. So we have to consciously avoid drugs and alcohol and cigarette smoke and pesticides and plastics and literally on and on it goes. So we have a lot to contend with physically, emotionally, culturally, and
0: spiritually. Yeah. it's. I, I know you're going to rebound from this bleak <laughs> because, because it's all true. I mean, in my business of Ayurvedic health counselor, this is all we talk about. This is, That's right. this is all I talk about. And yep. I can't wait to talk about what we can do to support because it's That's right. It it really does. People are like, I don't know what to do anymore. You know, it's like everywhere I turn, it just seems like a dead end.
1: It's so true. It's so true. And it really isn't right. And so let this be our call to action because we don't have to sit idly by and accept that menopause is the quote unquote beginning of the end, but it definitely can be an opportunity for a new beginning. Right. And that's really what what we want to focus on. So let's talk about diet first. There's no official menopausal diet that's established in a conventional sense. Of course, in Ayurveda, although individual considerations trump everything, a vata pacifying diet is most often recommended, right? It's usually the most appropriate diet, which remember, we're moving from the pitta to the vata phase of life. Also, vata governs all transitions, meaning vata is the force of movement and is heightened during transitions anyway. And most all of our symptoms of menopause are due to high Vata. Yep. So what is a Vata pacifying diet look like? Well, it's definitely nutrient dense, it's diverse, and it's digestible, right? So we want things that are cooked, that are well spiced. They don't have to be spicy, but using lots of spices that have all of those medicinal properties and antioxidants. And we want it to be unctuous. That means that it has a moist and oily quality to it. Now, of course, we want to make friends with our veggies if we're not already, Mm -hmm. um, because that's where we're going to get maximum nutrient content with the least amount of calories. That really works to our advantage because menopause is also a time where we see weight gain occurring, and that's primarily because estrogen regulates metabolism, So we have two things happening. We have the declining levels of estrogen and therefore we don't have that natural support to metabolism, but as we age, we also tend to lose muscle mass. Yes. Then we don't burn as many calories. And if you don't burn as many calories, you store more of them. Hmm. And then add on top of that lack of sleep and chronic stress with your adrenals being down regulated by your brain, now you've got a bunch of extra cortisol that you're producing, oh, yeah, right? Of course, that's a recipe. That's what we call belly weight gain. That's yeah. the, the recipe for that. Mm-hmm. So we want not only the nutrient density of our vegetables, but also the fiber that's so critical for healthy detoxification. Now, in another previous episode, we were talking about gallbladder disease and we talked a bit about beets and I wanna
0: highlight beets
1: again okay. here.
0: You and I, with the next. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, what works for me with that are beets, cooked beets. Yes. Yes. It's
1: so true. (laughs) Well, it's because they're so supportive to cleansing both the liver and the bowels. We mentioned that the beets, they help to dilate the bile ducts and get that bile flowing, which is carrying a lot of those toxic residues and hormone byproducts that we no longer need, right? That's carrying it out with the stool. And of course- that requires a good amount of fiber, which the beets also provide. And all of this, the liver and the bowel cleansing effects, helps to encourage proper hormone balance. Now, beets also happen to support our own production of nitric oxide, which helps to lower blood pressure and has many other physiological benefits, but lots of side benefits to beets. They're very vata pacifying. They're a root vegetable. They're sweet in nature. They also happen to be incredibly pit the pacifying as well. I do want to highlight greens as well. They provide us with the most magnesium and we're going to touch a little bit on magnesium uh, as well. Again, ideally we want to favor them at least gently cooked, right? Not cooked to an oblivion, but gently cooked and generously spiced, add some good healthy fats to that. Speaking of which, that's another super important dietary focus for Avata Pacifying Diet is that it's abundant in healthy fats. Yeah. Right, So these are our walnuts and our sesame seeds, our flax seeds are really helpful. Of course, ghee and olive oil, avocados, right? That fat is so critical for lubrication and it keeps the moisture in the tissues in a better way than just hydrating alone can do. So you've got to have the fat in order to lubricate and insulate the tissues, which includes our brains, right? We want nice, unctuous brains. Yeah. That's pH. Yeah.
0: Now, greens, we're talking about like a sautéed spinach, a sautéed kale. Perfect.
1: Yes, you got it. Swiss chard, watercress, arugula. And, you know, if we're in the warmer months, you're living in a warm location during spring and summer, then you can incorporate greens uh, that are more raw. But those hardier greens, especially in the colder months, then we really want to favor those cooked.
0: Okay. That's right. All
1: right. So while we're talking about it, we also... Likely want to cut back on the caffeine and alcohol. Most women will attest to the fact that it aggravates their hot flashes and their sleep disturbances. So that's one of those maybe breaking up of (laughs) old limiting substances.
0: Can I just ask you a quick question as a person who does love her one cup of kind coffee with my ghee in it? Yes. There's a lot of stuff about mushroom coffee. I I was just wondering is that an alternative for people who are listening that just love coffee and they just. It, it really is. And I
1: think it's a viable option for a lot of people. And so, you know, let's kind of break that down a little bit. There's always going to be best case scenario. And then there is what's acceptable. And then there's what is just not health promoting. And what's not health promoting is a typical conventional non-organic coffee, even a decaffeinated coffee that we're drinking a pot of every day, right? Well into the afternoon. If you want sleep disturbances, then go for it. Right? That's a great way. It's a great way to, to do that. But then there is the jump from a coffee drinker, especially a coffee connoisseur, to herbal tea is just not acceptable, right? So those are living on two different planets. I totally get it. So I like the mushroom coffee as an alternative because generally speaking, um, you're getting a lot less caffeine and you're getting the influence of these medicinal mushrooms, which most people, when they hear the term mushroom coffee, they're totally turned off unless you're an absolute fungi lover, like my daughter and I, but otherwise the good news is that it doesn't taste like mushroom at all. Like not even a little bit, right? It just, it tastes like regular coffee. And there are wonderful companies that are sourcing very high quality, sustainable coffee, fair trade, organic, and adding these either adaptogenic extracts like ashwagandha, rhodiola, eleuthero. And many of these medicinal mushrooms, right? Chaga and um, reishi, turkey tail. So I think it's definitely a huge upgrade from your regular conventional coffee.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much. I've been wondering about that.
1: Well, let's talk about another potentially controversial food, which is soy. There's a, a big divide between the camps when it comes to soy. the The research is quite unequivocal, and so. We find that there are people who think that soy should never be consumed. And then we find that people feel like it is absolute, uh, wonderful support, especially for women in menopause and postmenopausal.ly Now, um, one thing that we always have to mention is that there are individual considerations. So some people might have an, a soy sensitivity or an overt allergy to soy dating back from being bottle fed soy formula when they were an infant. Okay. So obviously if you're individual body has recognized soy proteins as a foreign invader, we don't want you consuming that, right? right? That's just going to stress your immune system more and you're likely going to have symptoms from it. But in terms of the pro camp, um, it is a phytoestrogen source. These are plant compounds that have hormonal like action in the body, and they can stimulate the same hormone receptors on our tissues and exert a similar, albeit weaker effect compared to our native hormones. And, you know, another interesting thing about these phytohormones coming from plant sources, they can also protect us by blocking those more potent pathological xenoestrogens coming from environmental exposures. Wow. So they can take up those receptor sites on those cells so that those potent xenoestrogens don't activate the tissues. Wow. So I tend to be more moderate in my approach. I don't think that we need to take a pound of cold tofu and blend it into our smoothie every morning. But, you know, I think number one, soy is a high GMO crop, right? It's a genetically modified crop. So you have to get organic so that you can ensure that it's not a GMO source. And then of course, if you get organic, then you are not also consuming all of the pesticide residues and glyphosate that they may be using. And then we also find that preparation matters. So if you buy, let's say sprouted tofu or fermented forms of soy like tempeh, those tend to be better in terms of digestibility and also nutrient content. Because the sprouting and the fermenting That helps to break down phytic acid, which may block the absorption of some more important minerals that you might be consuming at the same time. So organic, either sprouted or fermented and modest amounts, like it can be incorporated into the diet. It's not the most vata pacifying of all foods, but I do think that there's some advantage with the phytoestrogen influence from Mm -hmm. it. So, you know, take it in warm preparations, whether it's baked or sautéed and, you know, add your spices, add your healthy fats, and that will help to balance out some of those lighter, drier effects of soy. Nice. All right. Let's talk about some important nutrients. We mentioned that nutrient deficiency is one of the major things that we're contending with uh, in modern time. There's really no debate about that now. And although it's really important to be replete in all of our micronutrients, I want to highlight a couple that really can play a big role here with menopause. Mm. The B vitamins, the family of B vitamins are really important for all kinds of critical functions like blood sugar balance and energy production and mood stability. But B12 is particularly important because B12 levels tend to decline as we age anyway And B12 is really important for hormone balance, for mood stability, energy production, and cognitive function, right? So those are many of the things that we mentioned are symptoms of menopause, right? So B12 is important. Now, B12 comes most often in two forms. Sinocobalamin is the synthetic version, which has some disadvantages. So I always recommend methylcobalamin Methylcobalamin is a preparation that everyone can benefit from, whereas the synthetic version, not everybody can benefit from that. And there's some genetic testing that's required in order to know whether you are or you're not. So you might as well put your money into the actual better form of a B12. (laughs) And B12, we know, requires some specific substances produced by the gut in order to be absorbed further down in the small intestine. So, we have poor absorption of B12 as we age. And unfortunately, deficiencies in B12 are exacerbated by acid blocking medications, which are incredibly common in our culture. Right. So, if you are on an acid blocking medication, then you definitely should be supplementing with B12.
0: There's,
1: There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So, in order to get around this whole poor absorption issue, which again, comes from the fact that we're not producing sufficient stomach acid and intrinsic factor that's required for the absorption of B12, we can take a sublingual. That means that it is going to be dissolved under your tongue. And then it's going to be absorbed through the oral mucosa straight into the bloodstream. Right. Right. Um, And then they've got a bunch of, you know, there's all kinds of flavors and whatnot. So, you know, it's definitely an easy supplement to incorporate.
0: Is that like a spray or the sublingual? How does Typically, that... it would be in a tablet. So, okay. so you
1: put the tablet under your tongue, it's just going to dissolve and um, you'll get that that boost of B12. Now okay. you can t- uh, blood test for B12. And I find in my communications with my clients, medical providers, they're often very happy to test B12 levels if they're not already doing that as part of their own annual physical. Okay. Um, And ideally we want to see your B12 levels above 700. Okay. Give us a a marker there. Now I mentioned magnesium when we were talking about greens, green vegetables Um, and magnesium is absolutely critical. It is one of the most common nutrient deficiencies uh, worldwide and it's dubbed the calming mineral. That's its nickname, the calming mineral. And we're talking about a time of high vata,
0: right? Yeah. I actually had low magnesium and then started taking magnesium supplements and I cannot express the change that I felt.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I can tell you, Sherry, how many times I've heard that because it really does make a huge difference Magnesium is involved in hundreds, literally hundreds of enzymatic processes in your body. Yes. That means that you need magnesium in order to carry out basically every function that you can think of. Right. And the symptoms of magnesium deficiency are very consistent with the symptoms of a Vata imbalance. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you look up symptoms of a Vata imbalance and you look up symptoms of magnesium deficiency, they're almost identical. Right. So the way that I think about it is how do we possibly create balance in these energies if our bodies don't have the raw materials in order to carry out the functions? That's right. right? Yep. So again, I think that we're spinning our wheels a little bit, even in the world of Ayurveda, if we're not addressing these nutrient deficiencies, That's right? right? Yep. Now, one thing to know about magnesium, all forms are stool loosening, which can be a benefit or not, depending upon the consistency of your stool in general right? Um, So I typically recommend that my clients take it at night because it is a relaxant. It's a muscle relaxant. So it will help to support a sound night's sleep, even though it's not an overt sedative, people almost always report an improvement in the quality of their sleep when they're taking magnesium. And it also, when you take it at night, it supports proper detoxification, which your body's going through phases of detox anyway. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, it helps to induce a very predictable morning bowel movement, right? Which is really what we want. That's the gold standard of health. You wake up in the morning and at least within an hour or so, you have a bowel movement, Yes, right? And most of the time with magnesium, it's pretty instant, right? Most people will actually get out of bed in order to have a bowel movement, which is a great way to start your day. Yes, definitely. Um, now, most conventional grocery stores and drug stores only sell magnesium oxide. And I would highly recommend avoiding magnesium oxide because it's the most stool loosening. So you won't really get that much magnesium into your body, right? Into your tissues before your stools become too loose. Okay. That's the form that they use to clear you out for a colonoscopy, right? When they really want to just, you know, clear the colon. So my favorite form is magnesium glycinate because it's the least stool loosening form. Yeah. Right. So you can get more of the magnesium absorbed into your body and your tissues. Now, speaking of which, um, we want to keep the bowels moving because we want to detoxify daily. Mm -hmm. And constipation is often a result of dryness, at least type constipation.
0: I was going to say a lot of clients that come in in this age group are constipated.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that only backs everything up in the system, right? Mm -hmm. And makes us feel so much worse. So that daily bowel movement supports the liver and keeping the hormones balanced, right? So magnesium will help with that. Ayurveda, we love to incorporate triphala, which is a blend of three medicinal fruits that are bowel tonics. They help to regulate the bowel movements. And then of course, soluble fiber. So getting more of those flax seeds, the chia seeds, the psyllium husks uh, into your diet, that all works well. And then in herbalism, we have a category of herbs called demulsants And demulsants are really good for moisturizing the tissues, actually creating more moisture within the mucous membranes. Mm-hmm. So those are things like licorice root and slippery elm and marshmallow root. Right. Yeah. So those are, are great choices. The last nutrient I want to mention is vitamin D. It's really important to get your levels checked and make sure you have ideally optimum blood levels of vitamin D which of course we know is very important for bone health and vitamin D helps to increase the absorption of calcium. So along with sufficient amounts of vitamin K and magnesium, that calcium will go to fortifying your bones. Remember that accelerated bone loss is one of the concerns of menopause. Yes, and of course that doesn't stop, you know, it continues on in our postmenopausal years. So to that point we need to combine excellent nutrition often some targeted supplementation with one other recommendation for your bones, which is the weight bearing exercise, right? That's super important because that's going to protect and preserve our bone density and decrease that risk of fracture, which comes with it the risk of premature death. So what we want to do is we want to switch up our exercise routine, especially perimenopausally so that we include some weight training which increases that muscle mass, which helps us to burn more calories, keep our bones dense and our weight moderate to our constitution. Yes. All right. So that's nutrients. Now, another thing that comes up very commonly in our discussion of menopause is HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. So the question always is, do we replace or not to replace? with hormone replacement therapy. And of course, like all things, it's quite controversial and like all things well-executed, it depends, right? That's our, our least favorite answer to anything, but it's uh, this is definitely an appropriate case for that. So let me mention some of the concerns that have been raised over the years with hormone replacement therapy. Um, the first one is that there is a potential risk in aggressive types of breast cancer right? Those that are estrogen sensitive. So we do want to check family history for that. There's an increased risk of cardiovascular events, most notably blood clot formation. Mm -hmm. And of course that can lead to heart attack, stroke, pulmonary embolism. That's not a good thing. Interestingly, we do see urinary incontinence has been found to worsen with hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. And then we have increased risk of dementia, which is essentially cardiovascular disease of the brain. Now, one thing that we should mention is that these risks seem to increase the longer a woman is on hormone replacement therapy, and that the, the risks and side effects seem to be greater with synthetic HRT over the bioidentical forms. So that's definitely something to consider. And then finally, we often see that hormone replacement therapy simply delays the onset of symptoms. And then when women are coming off, which I have to say, women are often poorly supported to do that by their prescriber, then they tend to be older and potentially more vulnerable or less resilient, right. right. To experience those symptoms.
0: I have a quick question about hormone replacement therapy. Yes. Um, are people doing that because they just don't let the discomfort of the symptoms?
1: That's exactly right. And so, you know, with all that said, for many women, they do report excellent results from bioidentical HRT. And it really can be a godsend for many women who are suffering of more severe symptoms.
0: Is it done in conjunction, though, with like Ayurvedic support of balance, re- returning balance to the body naturally in a
1: very often not, right? And so that that really is our work. That's our job to fill in that need, because then you know, I'm not opposed to using conventional tools when necessary, especially if it's going to provide a woman with more comfort and ease so that she can make some of the more challenging changes to her diet and lifestyle. But the point is, is that it's not a permanent solution,
2: right? right? Right.
1: Now there is also a place for bioidentical HRT, of course, for women who have had their ovaries surgically removed. Okay. Because then you're not transitioning into menopause over the course of eight years. It's more like, I don't know, eight hours, right? Right, right. So
2: yeah. yeah.
1: So in that case, those symptoms can be just debilitating. And so we want to have a solution for those women. That's Right. right. Yeah. Now it's always a risk reward assessment, right? So there's greater consideration for hormone replacement therapy. If a woman already has accelerated bone loss. So she's been diagnosed with osteoporosis Mm -hmm. and the same thing is true for her. Like we're talking about in that case, it's important that she considers this a short-term transition support rather than a permanent solution. And she is actively working on preventing cancer, heart disease, dementia, and further bone loss.
0: Right, 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 of course, yeah.
1: Now there's greater concern against using hormone replacement therapy if she already has existing heart disease, especially coronary artery disease or untreated hypertension, right. if she has a personal history or family history of estrogen sensitive breast cancer or ovarian or uterine cancer. Right, right. Or if she has a blood clotting disorder or just has a history of developing blood clots. Mm. So those make it a little bit more risky.
0: Right. right. Of course, yeah. Now,
1: of course, the primary support in Ayurveda, and this is true for traditional Chinese medicine as well, for preventing, and of course, when necessary, treating these menopausal symptoms are female reproductive tonics, Mm -hmm. right? So so these are really the stars of the show, right? If there was one class of herbs that we would call upon to support women in this transition, it would be the female reproductive tonics, right? Now, the approach is quite different, uh, I want to mention, because compared to that conventional way of just, you know, kind of blocking symptoms as they arise, it's much more of a preventative approach in Ayurveda. And in reality, I think of it as a casual daily investment, which offers huge dividends in the future. So ideally, the way Ayurveda would want to approach this, of course, oftentimes we don't have the luxury of this, but in a perfect world, a girl would start taking small amounts of these reproductive tonics regularly throughout her reproductive phase of life, oh, Wow! right? So just a couple of grams a day of the reproductive tonics to maintain that hormone balance and to nourish her reproductive organs
2: mm-hmm. that
1: would start typically after menarche, the, the start of menstruation, which you can imagine you take a couple of grams a day, of a reproductive tonic sets you up perfectly to transition into menopause gracefully in about 30 years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's not like a shock to the system. Everything's been kind yes. of just calm the whole time. That's right. Right. Just think about it as that like nourishing support, right? Like uh, the
1: wind at your back, the entire reproductive phase of your life. So that when you hit menopause, you're not dealing with a lot of these overt deficiencies that make that transition so rough.
0: Great, great. More graceful. So
1: I, exactly. And I just love, love, love that approach. But of course, many of us have not had the grandmother, the mother, the auntie, or whoever that would have introduced us (laughs) to this idea. But the most famous of all of these female reproductive tonics in Ayurvedic medicine is shatavari. And shatavari, it's actually the root of an Asian variety of asparagus. So it's very food-like, which most tonics are, but it definitely has more, medicinal properties than your typical root vegetable. When you pull this plant up, it has what looks like a hundred roots hanging down from the plant. And so it was often translated as she with a hundred husbands, which kind of (laughs) reflects back to these hundred roots coming down from this plant. I I don't know. That doesn't sound all that great to me. I don't know. One one tends to be enough. How do you
0: spell it, Mary
1: Alice? It's S-H-A-T-A V-A-R-I, shatavari.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you.
1: So this is very good for hot flashes. It's excellent for creating more vaginal moisture and more vaginal tissue tone. So that suggests that it plays a very similar role as hormone replacement therapy in conventional medicine, but without those risks, Mm -hmm. right? Shatavari is energetically a cool and moist and heavy plant. It's just perfectly suited for the female physiology, right? Which wants to be cool and moist, but tends to become hot and dry over time.
0: Right. So it has kapha qualities.
1: It does. Yes. And again, if you think about it in terms of a couple of grams a day, it's not going to be overtly increasing to kapha. It's just going to be this beautiful nourishing support. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. Well, I'll mention a bit on dosing in a second, but I want to mention my second favorite, which is aloe vera and specifically aloe vera gel. Ayurveda calls aloe vera Kumari, which means young maiden, right? So it really was renowned for its female reproductive nourishing qualities. It also is very cool and moist. And we want that inner gel. We want the inner filet of the leaf, which is rich in a substance called allantoin which is a compound that increases the turnover of our new healthy cells. So that's great for promoting healthy tissues from the gut all the way out to the surface of our skin, including nourishing those deeper reproductive organs.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: So we love shatari and also kumari, aloe vera. I'll mention one more from traditional Chinese medicine, which is dong quai, And dong quai is considered to be the queen of herbs in uh, TCM. It's an excellent general tonic, and it's probably the most popular Chinese herb. It may be the most widely used herb in the world. You've got millions of women taking Dong quai daily in the similar way that we're talking about in Ayurvedic medicine, a couple of grams a day casually added into soups and teas that helps to strengthen the reproductive organs and regulate the menstrual cycle, right? Which mm-hmm. also translates to a smoother transition, again, 30 or so years from the time that she starts it.
0: And that is, that's D O N G D-O-N-G-Q-U-A-I? You got it, that's exactly right. Two words, Dong
1: Quai. That's right. How is that taken? Is um, it- same thing, so these are most often gonna be found in powdered form. Shatabri um, and Dong Quai are easily available. Um, like I said, they're probably the most famous of the reproductive tonics in both of their respective systems. So oh. you'll easily found, find powdered form yeah and or capsules now if you're buying a product that's already encapsulated then they'll tell you how many milligrams per capsule Mm -hmm. on average you can get about 500 milligrams in a single average double o size capsule Mm -hmm. and if we're talking about a couple of grams then that would be a one gram would be two capsules two grams would be four capsules Mm -hmm. right And that's a very modest, modest, modest dose. That's easy or should be very easy for anybody to incorporate. Again, casually speaking, that is not a big commitment. Now, if we're starting in our, let's say our 40s, right? We're looking towards that perimenopausal time, then we might need closer to 5 to 10 grams, Let's say we are pre-symptomatic, but we're heading towards menopause or our perimenopausal transition, then five to 10 grams is going to be a more realistic dose. But then of course, you can imagine, Sherry, the dose is going to go much higher from there for treatment, Sure. right? So for actual treatment, that's going to require higher doses because we didn't have the luxury of the investment that we put in for For the-
0: You might want to consult with the Ayurvedic practitioner. Absolutely.
1: Because then, you know, ultimately the treatments have to be catered to the individual. Of course, menopause is no exception. We have to address the unique manifestations that each woman is going to be experiencing and work with her unique contributing factors. So treatment definitely requires more expertise on the part of the clinician. And of course, on the flip side, it requires more effort on the part of the client, right? Yes. So that's why ideally we do want to urge our perimenopausal women to be thinking about this yesterday, (laughs) right? Exactly, exactly. Now, just a quick note on those hot flashes. Essentially, this is coming from that estrogen withdrawal. So a lot of times women can identify triggers, which temperature tends to be a big trigger, right? It's, It's too hot, potentially even it's too cold. Stress is a big one low blood sugar, lack of restful sleep. So we want to try to identify those personal triggers and of course, address that, right? Avoid them as much as possible, or, you know, ad- uh, address the habits that's leading to that, right? Alcohol, another one. Yeah. Now recall that we said those vasomotor symptoms are considered to be a Samana value imbalance. Oh, yeah. So remember I said that Samana Vayu is all about creating balance within our system. So the easiest and most direct way to cause an imbalance in Samana Vayu, the great balancer, is to have irregularity in your life. So irregular routines, essentially to not have any routine in your life, is the easiest way to cause an imbalance in Samana Vayu. Right? So you can imagine on the flip side, the reverse of that, the best way to create balance with Samana Vayu is to establish and maintain regular routines, right? So that's regular routines of waking, uh, moving your bowels, moving your body, nourishing your body and sleeping, right? Those are the fundamentals of life, right? And the more regularity we create with that, oftentimes the less intense and frequent the hot flashes are. We may all experience them to some degree, but they don't have to be debilitating, right? Yeah. Now, for those hot flashes, they're often uh, treated using those female hormonal tonics, the shatavri, the dong quai. Another very commonly used herb is black cohosh. Also has a lot of good research and results on its use for hot flashes. But that one too, um, you want to work with a practitioner on incorporating that because it can be a little queasy and you got to be counseled on you know how to titrate your dose up. Right. Definitely. Yeah. For that atrophic vaginitis, which is the irritated, dry vaginal mucosa, ghee can be used topically. So you can literally apply ghee to the vaginal canal. Um, you can even make your own tiny little suppositories out of ghee. If you have just like a little mold, you can even make it out of tinfoil, freeze some ghee and then insert it into the vaginal canal. It's a wonderful lubricant. Wow. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, um, in, in fact, the, the miracle, fact. right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. In in a lot of countries, it's actually used as a massage oil. It's it's quite luxurious, you can imagine.
2: Yeah. But um,
1: there is shatavri ghee. This is called shatavri gritam, where shatavri is cooked into ghee. So it's a, a medicinal or a medicated ghee that works even better. Wow. Right. So that would definitely be a go-to for me.
0: Where can people go to get these tonics and herbs and I mean, yeah, we have quite a few reliable
1: Ayurvedic suppliers. The most famous is is Banyan Botanicals. I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan and a customer of theirs for a very long time. I've I've toured their warehouse. I mean, they're dialed in. They're just a a wonderful company doing great work and supplying super high quality organic Ayurvedic herbs. They have not yet come out with a ghee line to my knowledge. I know they just started to make uh, medicated honeys, which are interesting. Yes. but you might have to go to a more traditional supplier for some of these other preparations kotakal might be one to look into it's k o t t a k a l i believe um so if you're looking for something like a Chitabri ghee then yeah. uh, you might have to look outside the uh, uh the box a little
0: okay yeah i was just wondering cuz i people are probably like i well, wonder where i get this stuff right I'm- no I'm- totally
1: 100% yes Now, we were talking about treatment requires uh, expertise on the part of the clinician, but of course, prevention is much more universal. So if you are in your 30s or 40s, you really want to be thinking ahead to the future. You want to seriously ask yourself, what do you want that future to look like? And what are you willing to do to get it? right? Because prevention is not complicated, but it does require commitment and consistency. Although of course I love with the the grace of nature on our side, it never requires perfection, <laughs> right? Right. Exactly. So, I'd really like to speak to those in that pre and perimenopausal phase of life. Uh, of course it's never too late and time's going to tick by anyway. So of course anyone can implement these. But ideally, we want to work to resolve major imbalances before transitioning into the Vaca time of life. It's only going to get harder as time goes on. So we got to address things now, right, as much as possible. So that means adopting regular routines of waking, eating, self-care, and sleeping. That's what keeps that Samana value in balance. And in turn, all of your other biorhythms will be in balance as a result. Next, you want to build and preserve what we call your rasa, your rasa.2. So rasa is the first most basic tissue layer in the body. It's related to all of our body fluids. So our plasma, our lymph, our interstitial fluids, the moisture within the mucous membranes, right? It's essentially what keeps us juicy physically. And it also has a psychological component, which is contentment right? So it keeps us physically juicy and psychologically content. So we can build and preserve our rasa through excellent hydration, through quality fats and oils, through those demulcent herbs and foods that I mentioned. And of course the simple yet very profound Ayurvedic practice of Abhyanga, which is daily self oil massage.
0: Yeah. Because when you do that, it actually absorbs into the tissue.
1: That's right. It gets um from the epidermis, the very superficial layer of the skin into the deeper layers of the dermis, which really nourishes those skin cells. It increases their lifespan, and it also prevents evaporation of water, which, of course, we lose a lot of our moisture just through evaporation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The next thing that I would urge is to start taking those adaptogenic glandular tonics. And ideally, at least in the pit the time of life, especially after 40, that's going to support your body in making that smooth transition. And last but not least, check your perspective, right? We, we have to embrace the transition into your wise woman years they really can truly be the most satisfying, sexually liberating, creative and content years of our life.
0: Absolutely. Amen to that. And Mm. I just uh, reiterate Ayurveda again, when I was going through peri and menopause, I was in Ayurveda school. And so I was becoming so much more aware of my body and my mind and the mind body connection and the importance of balance and really being introduced to the Ayurvedic lifestyle and way of, of thinking and living. And it really did make a difference in shortening whatever mm-hmm. what feeling. So I yes. want to just let everyone know, you know, I just think Ayurveda is so beneficial to balance in the body. And then everything becomes more graceful um, mm-hmm. when we do have to make these transitions. And so, Mary Alice, could you tell people where they can get a hold of you and your brilliant mind?
1: Absolutely. I am available through my website, which is maryalicequinn.com. That's M-A-R-Y-A-L-I-C-E-Q-U-I-N-N.com. So reach out to me there. You can uh, email me and um, we can coordinate. I'm more than happy to just chat with somebody to make sure that my services will meet their needs. So please feel free to reach out at any time.
0: Beautiful. And I did go on Banyan's website and they have turmeric ghee and chai spiced ghee. Ah yes, yes, yes. These are part of the These new. So they're, they're brand new. They're they're new. Yes. So well, that's
1: that's actually good news because that opens the uh, gateway for them to start to bring in some of these more uh, traditional preparations. Uh, I think they're starting with kind of the food piece, which makes a lot of sense. And then something like uh, shatavri ghee may be coming right behind that. But in the meantime, plain ghee works just as well. But if you can get some shatavri ghee, if you want to use it as a lubricant, then it's wonderful. Oh, let me mention, you cannot combine oils with uh, latex condoms. Cause oh. the oils break down, you know, just in case we're just throwing this out there because it is a wonderful lubricant, but it's not great for contraception in combination with condoms. <laughs> <Good side note>. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of possibilities out there. Lots see, of possibilities.
0: Oh, I, I'm just, I just appreciate this so much, Mary Alice. This was a just incredible amount of information. And I, I'm sure there are so many women out there that are just going to really have a clearer picture and understanding mm. uh, this is a beautiful time. It's just different. That's all. I myself enjoyed it and I enjoy the aftermath. I enjoy the yoga class, mm-hmm. no ba- need for babysitters. And I enjoy the, <laughs> <laughs> the wisdom really that I gained by traveling inward during this Vata time of life. So
1: Hmm. So beautiful. It's really the most important work that we have to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart and I hope to talk with you soon again.
1: I'm looking forward to it. All right, Sherry. Namaste.
0: Okay. Namaste. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you would like to experience healing or give the gift of healing to another, please go to my website www.hamsaholistichealingandayurveda.com or email me at sherry at hamsaholistichealing.com or you can contact me on Facebook, Sherry Burjansky. I offer Ayurveda consultations, Reiki energy healings, reflexology and Ayurveda foot massage, tarot card readings, angel card readings, and much more. If you found this podcast helpful, please share an episode so that we can spread this wonderful wisdom of healing. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care. Namaste.